0: So, these are the five points that incidentally the reformers, back really starting in the 1400s, 1500s, and then going forward, these are where the five, uh, the five points where the reformers disagreed with the Catholic Church's theology. And so, we're going to let me read our statement, but we're going to make our way one more time through these five solas, these five statements of alone. And this week, what we're going to be looking at is the first one, and the main reason is because Scripture alone, and this is what I'm going to build an argument today on, is that Scripture alone is the bedrock, it's the foundation, it's the bedrock of our faith. So one more time, let me read this. It says, as revealed by Scripture alone, Christians are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, my desire is to leave about 15 minutes at the end for us to have some uh, Q&A. And I've only got about 90 minutes of material, so we'll we'll see if that works. Um, (laughs) We won't hold our breath to that, though. Um, But here's the big idea. The big idea that I want to be able to share is that the undisputable claim of Scripture is that Scripture alone is the bedrock of our faith. I say that it's the bedrock of our faith because every word of Scripture is God's very word, and we will see that. I say it's undisputable because no reasonable person can actually argue with with integrity, that Scripture does not make this claim about itself. What is undisputable is that it's the claim of Scripture that every word is God's word. And I say it's the bedrock because our faith, Christianity, our very faith in God is built upon the fact that every word in Scripture is God's word And apart from it being from God, we have no confidence, we have no um, reason to believe that it would be revealing truth. So if you would, we're going to start in what is probably one of the most prominent verses. When somebody says, what does Scripture say about itself? We're going to turn to one of the most prominent verses that often come up, and this is 2 Timothy 3.16. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, um, we'll, we'll read it. And it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Some translations will say inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. So breathed out by God, literally it is God breathed. Now, if you were to take your hand and just talk, you can feel the breath coming out as you as you speak. And this is this is what scripture is. It is words that are breathed out by God. If you know the word inspiration and, and the translations that say inspired by God, that's an equally good interpretation or equally good translation. Because inspiration comes from the Latin, it's in, which means in. So inspirare, which is to breathe. And so its inspiration literally is the in breathing of God. And so scripture is inspired. Scripture is God breathed. Scripture is inspirare from God into the human authors. Notice also one thing that it says. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed. There is no Scripture that is not God-breathed. Therefore, the implication of being God-breathed and being inspired by God, it applies from the very beginning to the very end. The entirety of Scripture is breathed out by God. And therefore... There cannot be areas in Scripture over which Scripture does not have authority. If every part of Scripture is from God, there is not an area that you can say God does not have the authority over. So, this verse is so critical in our understanding of Scripture, and it is something that what we want to do is make sure that we not only understand it, but as we live our lives, we let this verse shape the way that we approach both life and the Word of God itself. I want to share with you a definition of inspiration. And this, this is great. It's, it's uh, by a, um, a theologian, Matthew Barrett, um, And he says, the inspiration of Scripture refers to the act whereby the Holy Spirit came upon the authors of Scripture, causing them to write exactly what God intended, while simultaneously preserving each author's writing style and personality. This supernatural work of the Holy Spirit upon the human authors means that the author's words are God's words. And therefore, by implication, they are reliable, they are trustworthy, and they are authoritative. This is the heart of Sola Scriptura. This is the heart of Scripture alone. This is the bedrock, the foundation of why the reformers clung to Scripture alone. It is from God, from first to last. It is right, it is true, and ultimately, it is authoritative. It has authority over any human institution. No one can counter Scripture. Scripture has the last word. So let me ask a question, though. And I think this is an honest question. Can the Scripture, the inspiration, the breathing out from God, can it allow for the fallen condition of man can error exist in Scripture that has been touched by sinful man? And this is the question that will be asked. This is the argument that is made. Can a fallen man bring error into words that God has has breathed out? And I was uh, actually told just a couple weeks ago by a young man who is in seminary right now um, at a uh, seminary at Baylor. And... What he said was, Scripture is authoritative and it's the authoritative word of God. It is infallible in all that it says pertaining to salvation. Notice the distinction? Scripture is the word of God. It's authoritative, it's without error in everything that it says about salvation. What's implied in that is that it does have errors, though. There's areas not pertaining to salvation where it does err. And this was solely based upon the idea that if a fallen man has touched it, errors will occur. So how would you respond to this line of reasoning? How would you respond to that understanding of Scripture? So what I'm going to do to start off with is, uh, and I'm so excited, we're going to look at 2 Peter, and we're going to spend a little bit of time there. But we're going to look at 2 Peter 1, really verses 20 and 21, and it's going to lay out four unambiguous truths that must define your view of Scripture. And what, we'll actually start, get a little bit of a context by looking in verse 13, and this is going to help answer that very question, the very statement that this young man raised. So starting in verse 13 of uh, 2 Peter 1, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, what he's actually talking about, he's referring to recalling what he has just spoken about, which is, yeah, we won't go into that. We're short on time. So... Um, But this letter is almost as though the last will and testament of Peter. This letter is the last thing, really, that he was writing. And he wants to make sure before he leaves this earth that these truths are going to be understood and remembered by those who are reading it. And so he says, as long as I am in this body, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. This is one of the most clear examples we can find of this is my life's most important work. What is the last thing that I'm going to be saying? And then let's look at where he continues in verse 16. For, guys, this gets exciting. I just want you all to know this is going to be very neat. (laughs) So, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So we've got Peter, walked with Christ, served with him here on earth, saw his majesty. And he's saying, I did not follow, and when I shared with you the majesty of Christ, I wasn't following carefully constructed myths that we're trying to perpetuate. I was an eyewitness. Now, what was it that he was an eyewitness of? Verse 17, for when he received glory, uh, when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. What is Peter talking about? The transfiguration, absolutely. Peter is saying, we're not following myths. I was an eyewitness and I'm sharing with you when I tell you about the majesty of Christ I'm sharing what I saw and by the way one of the things I saw was the Shekinah glory of God emanating from Christ and the voice of God coming down from heaven saying this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased and Peter says and we have A more prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. Peter is saying, what I have to give to you is more authoritative. It's more confirming than the voice of God crying out from heaven upon his son. What is more authoritative or more confirming than God crying out to heaven that Peter could hear? i tell you, it's the word of God. We're going to find this out. <laughs> to which you'll be, you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this first of all, that And this is, this is what is more confirming. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Where is the authority? It's when men spoke from God, when God breathed out through these men, the Holy Spirit carried them along and Scripture was delivered. That is more authoritative even than seeing Christ transfigured on the mountain and God verbally proclaiming, this is my son. Let that sink in. We have something more certain and more confirmed than the voice of Yahweh God audibly proclaiming Christ as his son. There is nothing that could be more certain than this. No prophecy of scripture come what comes from someone's own interpretation. In verse 20, we certainly know that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And just as we spoke earlier about all Scripture being God-breathed, the same truth is carried over here, where it says no prophecy of Scripture." So, this implies to the entirety of it, from beginning to end, no scripture was brought apart by the will of man. And it comes from its origin, its delivery of scripture, its source, its transmission. It comes from God Himself. Men were merely carried along and in a way that is majestic, that we don't understand, we do see God using the personalities and the histories of men as it comes across in Scripture, but it is not their words, it is God's words. So the first truth that I wanna share with you is that not one word of Scripture had its origins or delivery by man's will. This is why it is an impossibility for man's fallen will to have corrupted it. It did not come through or from the will of man. It's not a product of man, it's a product of God. So these are the negatives, but then there's also the positive, which is the second truth. Every word of Scripture had its origins in God and it's delivery by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Every word of scripture has its origins in and delivery by the Holy Spirit. It's an impossibility and this needs to be a bulwark that you set up and fight against any type of opposition to this, there is no possibility that scripture allows for the will of man to have corrupted the word of God. So implication from this, if it is not from man's will, and if it is from and by God, truth number three, that necessitates every word of scripture it must be true it must be correct it must be without error if this is not the truth is not the case if scripture is not true if scripture is not correct or scripture does have error then you have to conclude that god willfully chose to deliver man Falsehood and error apart from man's will being involved. That is the only logical explanation that you can come to if you believe word, the Word of God has error. Just showing how um, both God's character as well as the word of God's character is spoken about this in other passages, you can look in John 10:35. it says, "Scripture cannot be broken." Christ says this. In 1 John 1 5, we're told, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie. John 14. Notice this one. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth not the spirit of error every word of scripture must be true correct and without error and therefore truth number 4 every word of scripture must be absolutely authoritative since every word is from the the sovereign creator, sustainer, ruler, God, his words are ultimately the authority over his creation, including you and including me. Four unambiguous truths that must define your view of Scripture. Not one word had its origin in the will of man. Every word of Scripture had its origin and delivery in God, in the Holy Spirit. Every word of Scripture must be true, correct, and without error. And every word of Scripture must be absolutely authoritative. This is why Scripture alone is the bedrock of our Christian faith. You have a choice to believe do I believe the Bible is the word of God? You do not have the choice to believe with any type of integrity to say, I believe it's the word of God, but it is not authoritative or it is not without error. Deuteronomy 29, 29. This this is going to be, this is another good one. There's a lot of good ones in here, right? <laughs> so, understanding Scripture and what it is, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things that are revealed, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has revealed his otherwise unknowable words. God has revealed through his breathing in, through the carrying on by the Spirit, through these authors that God has written through, God has revealed the the words of God that are eternally For us and those who will come after us. Notice what what this says there. It says, these things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. We receive the words of God. We pass on the words of God. And this will continue forever. Until the Lord returns and we have no more need of his revealed word because we will have him himself. Until that day, we have the word of God revealed to us and it is ours. But it is not ours to do as we would wish or do what we would choose with. It is ours and our children's forever so that we may do all the words of his law. It is the receiving of the revelation from God through his word that allows us to know his law and it is the receiving of the words from the revelation of God so that we may be in right relationship with him. Apart from the word of God, where God has revealed himself to us, man cannot be in right relationship with God. This is why Scripture alone is the bedrock of our Christian faith. Apart from Scripture, we cannot be saved. This is why Scripture alone is the bedrock. Where else can we go to? To what else can we cling to? We have nothing. But it gets better, (laughs) right? So we looked at these four ambiguous, unambiguous truths that define our view of Scripture. What I want to do is look a couple chapters later in 2 Peter. We're going to stay there in chapter 3. And we're going to look at four, again, unambiguous truths. These hit you in the face. They're unambiguous truths that must define your need for Scripture. We know what Scripture is, but let's look at our need. So, we're going to be in 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 15, and just look at 15 through 18. It says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. So, we're going to count the patience of our Lord to us as salvation, And this is something Paul, our beloved brother, has also written to you according to the wisdom that has given to them, right? As he does in all his letters. So this is what Paul does. He writes in all of his letters. And when he speaks in them of these matters... Now, tell me if you agree with this. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Yes, we we agree with that. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. How many of us have seen ignorant, unstable people twist the words of Paul to lose the gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's not a surprise to us, as they do with the other scriptures. The ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with the other scriptures. Therefore, you, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that the twisting happens, take care that you are not carried away with the error of these lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom that was given to him. There was wisdom that was given to Paul. And this wisdom spread across all of his letters. There was wisdom given to him, and he wrote these letters. So let's understand, though, it says there are some things that are hard to understand that the ignorant and unstable twist. Yes, again, we agree with this. The ignorant maybe just have a lack of understanding. I have not been taught or shown this before. I'm, I'm without the knowledge. I'm just ignorant. But the unstable, they have a lack of an ability to stand possibly to stand on um, proper logic or reason, they are not able to logically read and approach the Scriptures and therefore they won't actually engage in actual debate. Tell me if you've seen this before, where they won't actually look at what the text is saying, but tangent here, tangent there, cut you off here, they can't do that because they're unstable. They cannot stand where they are holding to. But it's they, they can't engage in that debate, and the reason falls apart. They have an instability, possibly of emotion. My God would not do that. We've seen that. But it's not the stability of careful reason reading to understand the Scriptures. But most importantly, and this is why we want to look at this text, they do this, this twisting, as they do the rest of of scriptures. This passage right here in 2 Peter 3, this is where Peter affirms the writings of Paul and all of his letters are included with scripture. You will hear people say in their instability that, oh, well, the church didn't actually recognize Paul's writings or the other Uh, books of the Bible as Scripture until the 400s um, after death. Uh, That is not what Scripture claims. Peter, who walked with Christ, claimed Paul's writings were Scripture. Peter could have said, as they do with Scripture, but that's not what he said. The Spirit through him, by his grace, gave us the stability of being able to stand on the fact that we know that Paul's writings were Scripture, and Peter affirmed that right here. Scripture was recognized as Scripture by the writers of Scripture. Now, on a little tangent, I really read this this week. There was a blog post of a man calls himself a progressive theologian so we know what that means. He was arguing that 1 and 2 Peter were not written by Peter and should not be um, included with Scripture because he had the audacity to claim that Paul's writings were Scripture, and we know, every, every biblical critic is able to know with certainty that Paul's writings aren't really Scripture, and so his reason for removing 1st and 2nd Peter was because Peter affirmed Paul's writings as scripture. That's not in the notes. That's for free. <laughs> so the first truth from 2nd Peter 3, Paul's letters are scripture. But equally true, people will twist scripture. It will happen. Look in verse 17. It says, But, so in contrast, you, knowing this beforehand, knowing that the twisting is going to happen, you take care that you are not carried away. They may be carried away in their ignorance and in their instability, but you take care, you don't be carried away. Don't be carried away with the error of these lawless people. These people who twist scripture are without God's law. They are not believers. The progressive Christian theologian is lost. Do not be carried away with the error of these lawless people and lose your own stability. The ignorant and unstable who twist Scripture are lawless, and if you follow them, you too will become unstable, just like the ignorant, just like the unstable. And so this is this third truth. You can be led into error take care that you are not carried away it's a sobering truth you can be led into error but verse 18 but grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ don't be carried away but you grow in the knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ growing in your understanding of scripture is equated with the growing in the knowledge of jesus christ growing in the understanding of scripture this is growing in the knowledge of christ Which, incidentally, write down uh, Ephesians 1, I think 14, 15, 16, 17. Go to 17. Paul's prayer to the Ephesians is that they would grow, that God would grant them a wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of him. God. Paul's prayer was praying that they would grow in the knowledge of Christ and that by default comes through the word of God. It doesn't happen by... Uh, just praying, fill me with knowledge. That's also a side point. Go look at that. That's a good one. And, and we'll actually look at another verse that, that refers to this as well. So, four unambiguous truths that must define your need of Scripture. Paul's letters are Scripture. People will twist Scripture. You can be led into error, and you must grow in knowledge of Scripture, which is the knowledge of of Christ. So this this is exactly why and we're actually going to look back in 2 Timothy where we were 2 Timothy 3:16. This is exactly why this truth that Peter was saying is exactly why Paul's final charge to Timothy was to take make sure that Timothy never stopped training his flock in the scriptures. Immediately after Paul proclaimed to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that we read earlier that all Scripture was breathed out by God and was profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is the next word Paul says to Timothy? What was Timothy's application of that truth? In 2 Timothy 4, read with me in verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is the judge of the living of the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is a serious charge. I charge you before God, before Christ, in the presence of his appearing, and in the presence of his kingdom, and by the way, he is the judge of the living and the dead. Before Him, I give you this charge. Timothy, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. A pastor's charge is simple. Preach the word. Reprove, rebuke. Exhort, patiently teaching. This makes sense. What else does a pastor have other than the word of God? There's nothing. The word of God is what has been delivered. The word of God is what is profitable. The word of God is what Timothy, uh, Paul charges Timothy to preach. And this is the same thing that we see in Acts 6. And you don't need to turn there, but I'll read this. So, in Acts 6, verse 2, it says, "...and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples together." So, all the believers were brought together, probably around 10,000 total people at this point. And they said, "...it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom." who will all who we will appoint to this duty some administrative duty about feeding the needy verse 4 though but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word paul to timothy preach the word the apostles to the entirety of the church we must devote ourselves to the ministry of the Word. Brothers and sisters, you need a pastor and shepherds who will devote themselves to the preaching of the Word. And praise God that we have that. But you need that. There is nothing else of value. This is why sola scriptura Scripture alone is the bedrock of our faith. Why is it that pastors and shepherds are to be devoted to the preaching and the ministry of the word? John 17, 17. What does it say? Who knows this? Yes. Yes. Sanctify them. This is a prayer from Christ to God for us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. And God's word is our tool for our sanctification. Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up, I have hidden your words in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is our tool given to us for our sanctification. We hold to Scripture alone because Scripture alone is true. We hold to Scripture alone because it is the tool for our sanctification to make us holy. This is why it is the bedrock of our faith. So, to this point, we've really looked at characteristics of Scripture and its source. So, I want us to go to Psalm 19. This is another good one, guys. (laughs) Um, Let's look at a different passage and examine more reasons why we cling so tightly to the biblical principle of Scripture alone. So Psalm 19. So, in verses 1 through 6, you have general revelation. This is where the heavens, God's creation, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his excellence, his handiworks. And he continues about day to day pouring out speech, night to night reveals knowledge, and there is no word whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout the entire earth. God God reveals his glory through the creation. And the first half of Psalm 19 is saying specifically the heavens do this. What I want to look at, though, is starting in verse 7. This is where we get into specific revelation. It's not broad revelation given to all men, but specifically the revelation of God through his word for salvation, specific revelation. And I want you to listen to, and actually you have a chart on there, so it should be very easy for you. But I want you to listen to, how is Scripture referred to, what is Scripture, and then what does Scripture do? This is going to be repeated one after the other, and so I've kind of put it in this chart for you. So let's go ahead and read in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So you have this chart here. God's word is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and righteous altogether and more desirous than much fine gold and sweeter than honey's drippings. And what does it do? It revives the soul. It makes wise wise the simple. It rejoices the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, warning the servants, and rewarding the saints who keep them. Does any of this surprise you, knowing that it's God's breathed-out word, God's true and sanctifying word, should have this effect on us. It's not surprising. But with this understanding, this is what I want to highlight. Verse 12. This is what the word of the Lord is. What about man? Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. What does David say about man? It's a rhetorical question. Who can discern his errors? And I don't know if there's a rhetorical answer, but the rhetorical answer, nobody can discern his own error. Nobody can discern even his own error. Why do we hold to Scripture alone Because scripture alone is able to help a man who cannot even tell when he is in error. If left to himself, man cannot even tell when he is wrong. He needs reviving of the soul, making of wise, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. Enduring forever, warning your servant, rewarding the saints who keep them. This is what he needs. He needs the word of God. This is why we hold so tightly to Scripture alone. And this is why David continues in verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The presumptuous sin that I know is against the law, I know is contrary to God's word, but presumptuously I do it anyway. Oh God, keep me from presumptuous sin. God, if you can do that If you can keep me from walking in sin, if you can reveal to me my error and keep me from my error, then I shall be blameless. But apart from you, I am hopeless. I have nothing apart from the Word of God. And incidentally, while he's talking about the Word of God and the impacts on man, notice in verse 13 that God is said, keep your servant also from presumptuous sin. When God works through his word, it is God doing the work. And ultimately, his prayer, in light of all of this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. We on our own, are incapable even of knowing our own error. We are completely dependent upon the Lord. And this is seen through other scriptures. Um, This actually was shared with me this week, but Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20, when he was being threatened by an invading army, he says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I've got nothing. I don't know what to do, but I look to you. So in light of our dependence, let's, on Scripture, let's look at what is probably the single most important verse that shapes our confidence in sola scriptura, in Scripture alone alone for our individual lives. 2 Peter 1.3. So let's go ahead and turn there, and we're, we're gonna end on this. Man, we've got to end on this one. This, this one's at different spots. <laughs> this is a great one to end on. 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God has granted to us, what does it say? All things pertaining to life. All things pertaining to godliness. And there is Delivered to us through the knowledge of Him. If there is something you need in life, if there is something you need for godly living, God has granted it to you already. And it's through the knowledge of Him, through His revealed Scripture through His revealed Word. This is what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. We know it is true, and it is right, and it is authoritative, and we know that it is from God, and we know that it was delivered by the Holy Spirit. But we need nothing else because through the Scripture and the knowledge of God that he has given us through his word, God has granted to us all things pertaining to life. All things pertaining to godliness. And I think, actually, in the the parenting, one of the parenting lessons, uh, Jason referenced the fact that we might not find a manual on how to fold one of the cloth diapers and pin it to our child. But what we do find is how we as parents will love and serve and raise our child. So there's not a manual on how to fix Xerox copy machines. I say buy a new one. I don't know how to fix this. (laughs) Buy a new one too, right? Yeah. But I wouldn't know how to fix it. But how would I be a good steward of what God has entrusted to me? How do I be a good worker for the employer who has given me this xerox machine to fix and run that is given to us in the word all of these things going back to deuteronomy 29 just reiterate that all of these things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever so that we may do the words of this law So in application, how does this apply to us just very practically? Well, Scripture is clear. Do the work to understand what the Word of God says, and then do it. It's that simple. Scripture alone is authoritative. If you want to disagree with something that Scripture says, if you don't like what it is saying, you change. Don't change Scripture. <laughs> Simple, right? <laughs> scripture is sanctifying. Get the Scripture in your mouth. Get the Scripture in in your mind, get the scripture in your heart. And I close with Deuteronomy six, four through nine. Apply this to yourselves, to your family, and to those that are around you. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently, to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Your life must be fully saturated with scripture because only scripture only scripture is all that we have for anything pertaining to life and godliness. I'm going to close with a psalm that was shared with me just this morning. This is wonderful. Psalm 138. So I guess that's two closings. That was my close and I've got a second close. I've got another close. I'll have a minute to spare when we're done. So For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And I put that at the top of your paper right there. 138.2. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we have nothing apart from you. And by your grace, you have revealed who you are through your word. May we rest upon scripture alone in our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.